Well, Christ Church, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and beginning in verse 35, as we continue uh, our series through the Gospel of, of Mark. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this gospel narrative, and we ask that you would teach us from it, that you would convict us of our sins and direct our eyes to Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, last uh, Lord's Day, uh, we were in, of course, the uh, passage before this one, and it was a, a Sabbath day, and we learned that all that took place on that Sabbath was really a picture of the eternal Sabbath and that which we will enjoy uh, forever in glory. Christian believers experience a taste of the eternal Sabbath each time we come together on the Lord's Day to participate in covenant worship and receive afresh the redeeming promises of God, which are full of marvelous future hope. Just as in Capernaum, Jesus healed the demoniac and then healed Peter's mother-in-law from her fever and also healed the multitude that gathered outside Peter and Andrew's door, so Christ will bring spiritual and physical and emotional and every other kind of healing for all of God's people at the consummation. Isn't that going to be wonderful? It is so good to be a Christian. It is so wonderful to have these promises declared to us by God himself. And so we cling to those promises, even as we cling uh, to Christ. Uh, what we are doing at Christ Church in morning and evening worship has, as I've mentioned before, profound spiritual significance. For we are tasting of the eternal heavenly Sabbath, where all of God's people will know perfect love and joy and peace and healing and holiness. When I find myself missing loved ones who are in heaven, it's the next thought is finding great joy uh, and, uh, and happiness, knowing that they are no longer here dealing with all of the sin and brokenness of this world. And this life is so short, too. It's like but a breath, right? It's uh, like a blip on a radar compared to eternity. To us, it seems so big and so long at times because of uh, the grief and the sorrow that we uh, tend to have to uh, experience, but it is so short in comparison to eternity. And Paul promises that 
compared to the eternal weight of glory that we anticipate, uh, our, our suffering is very light and momentary. Praise the Lord for that. But the passage before us brings us uh, to uh, the next morning. Uh, so it was the Sabbath day in the previous text, and all these things took place, and now it is the next day. It is the following uh, morning after the Jewish Sabbath. Uh, Jesus must have been very tired. Uh, remember, he was fully God and fully man, and so he, he was tired. And uh, we see this with him falling asleep in the boat and, and other times uh, showing his humanity. And he must have been tired. It was a very full uh, day. Um, uh, he was preaching, teaching God's word, healing people, uh, ministering to people. But rather than sleeping in, uh, like I must admit I do sometimes on a Monday morning, I was very convicted by this text as I was studying this week. Oh, man, I can't sleep in until 7, you know, on Mondays anymore. I got to get up early. Um, uh, but here's Jesus rising very early in the morning. Notice there verse 35. Not just early, but very early uh, in the morning. While it was still dark, and he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, probably every one of us in this room has uh, heard, or most of us have heard uh, a sermon on this text or heard teaching on this text, and it immediately goes uh, to how we need to have uh, private worship. And that is uh, a uh, a good application, uh, one of the applications that we can make from this, this text. If Jesus goes out to pray to his Father and to be alone, then, uh, and he's the, the Son of God, uh, he's the God-man, I think that we, we too uh, should uh, think about how we need to spend time uh, before the Lord, to be still and to know that he is God. But we, we always want to be careful about rushing into an application that really is just primarily uh, focusing on, on sort of just a practical application, a personal application. There's more going on here in this text uh, than sometimes people realize. Now, uh, we do know that prayer was an important part of Jesus' life. We especially see this uh, in the book of Mark in chapter 6 and verse 46. Uh, after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. And then, of course, he prayed in Gethsemane in Mark 14, 32 through 42. In the other Gospels, we see Christ uh, teaching the disciples how to pray. They, they saw Jesus uh, as a model of, of prayer, and so they wanted to know how, how to pray. They, they saw Jesus' example. They heard him pray, but they wanted to know. And so Jesus taught them to pray in the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew 6, 7 through 13. Uh, also, we can read and study one of Christ's most uh, important and glorious prayers, the high priestly prayer uh, set forth in John chapter 17. The fact that Jesus spent so much time in prayer demonstrates at least three things about Jesus. Remember, this uh, series, we are getting to know Jesus. What do we know about him when we see him praying so much? Because, you know, some might think, well, Jesus is, is the Son of God. He's He's the God-man. Why, why should he pray? What does he need to pray uh, for? But we need to remember 
that Jesus, in his full humanity, being also fully God, carrying out his life in his full humanity, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is living out the kind of quintessential Christian life. He's showing us what it is to be a Christian. Jesus was and is one of us without ceasing to be God. And so the first point we learn about Jesus is that he was dependent upon his heavenly Father. Jesus was dependent upon his heavenly Father. And while we don't want to get into any super heavy Christology tonight, we need to remember that Jesus wasn't a mixture of the divine and the human, and he didn't sort of tap into his divine nature every time he wanted to know something or gain some kind of super divine strength. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he set aside his divine privileges as the Godman. He came down from heaven, and he became one of us without ceasing to be God, But as it says in Philippians chapter 2, he set aside his divine privileges. So when it says that Jesus was tired or that he slept or that he was hungry, he really was. And when we talk about God the Father in heaven, we don't talk about him as being hungry or sleepy, right? And so we have here the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus being fully man, fully human, and fully God, two, excuse me, one person with two natures, but of course setting aside the privileges of his divinity and walking in this life as one of us, again, without ceasing to be God. It's a great, a great mystery. If he was something besides fully man, carrying out the law, going through temptation, going through hungering and suffering, right? If he was something other than that, then he would not be the perfect high priest for us. Then we could not go to him, Hebrews chapter 4, as the one who sympathizes with us and understands our weakness, right? That's very important to remember. Um, Christ was dependent upon his heavenly Father in this respect, he expresses his, this trust and dependence in the book of John, chapter 5, 19 and 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Again, in John fourteen ten, Jesus asked, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. So he is dependent upon the Father. He is trusting in the Father. Now, perhaps some may be wondering why Jesus, God incarnate, which shows such dependence upon his heavenly Father. Again, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, fully God, fully man, one person, two natures, and in his humanity, he knew and sensed and had the great need to find strength, direction, and encouragement from his Father. A second reason why Jesus woke up early and went to a quiet place and spent time in prayer is that he understood the importance of formal times of prayer. 
Um, we throw up sort of Nehemiah prayers uh, all the time while we're driving in the car, when we're at the grocery store, um, when we're talking to an unbeliever, we'll pray these kinds of quick prayers in our minds. The Lord hears these prayers. But it is important to have some sustained times of prayer. Uh, of course, we talk about it in this church regularly, how important it is to, to be still and to know that God is God and to do that privately. Um, it, uh, there's something about closet prayer that, that shows the sincerity of the heart right, as a Christian. And so we spend time uh, with the Lord in prayer. Jesus understood the importance of this. He knew that it was crucial that he had special seasons of prayer, especially during time, uh, times of increased pressure, pressure in life and ministry. He highly valued time set aside to pray in a focused and concentrated manner. Now, how many of you will have these focused, you know, air quotes, times of prayer but it actually takes you about five or ten minutes of prayer to actually start praying because you're so distracted because all these thoughts keep coming into your mind about what you have to do that day or what has already happened during that day. Well, if that happens to you, you're not uh, alone. It probably happens to everybody in this, in this room. Uh, and so uh, it is true that oftentimes we need this focused time of prayer because it takes just a little bit of time to actually begin praying. Um, and so let us set time aside for prayer, even as our, our Lord did. Thirdly, Jesus needed times of renewal and encouragement to fulfill his mission. Christ was on a mission. His public ministry was on a mission to eventually go to Jerusalem and to die uh, for his people. He was on a mission to proclaim uh, the gospel of God. Uh, and so uh, he needed times of renewal, times of, of encouragement. And, and so, again, if Christ needed these times, how much uh, do we need them? Verse 28 of our text states that Simon Peter was named first as uh, one that realized Jesus had disappeared from his home that morning. Did you notice that? One can just imagine Peter running into Jesus' room, looking forward to speaking with him about the activities of the day uh, before the pancakes were served. And just uh, as he notices Jesus is gone, he realizes that there are crowds of people already sort of lining up or gathering outside the home. Remember what Jesus had been doing the day before, casting out demons, healing people's diseases, preaching with authority. These people were coming back the next day. They wanted uh, to hear more. They wanted to experience uh, more. We can probably guess that Peter and the other disciples knew the spot that Jesus probably was. There was probably a place nearby where people went uh, to pray, and, uh, and so uh, he went there. And when presumably the four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, found Jesus, they said to him, uh, maybe even interrupting his prayers, we don't know, maybe even with a, uh, a tone of annoyance. Uh, you almost get that when you read this. Jesus, everybody's waiting for you. What are you doing out here? It's as if he's saying, Jesus, where have you been? Everyone's looking for you. There are crowds of people waiting to be healed. This is your opportunity to make a name for yourself right here in our hometown. Let's go. Let's go back. 
as they are turning to go back to the house, Jesus says this, let us go on to the next towns. Let us go on to the next towns. This is what he says. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Remember last week, uh, we talked about these healings, these miracles that Christ was doing, that this was kind of a preview for the eternal Sabbath, for his return, and all the glorious things that he would do. You see, if that was the center of Christ's ministry, he would have went right back to Peter's mother-in-law's home and began doing the same things he was doing before, and maybe even set up a big tent and just stayed there for months and conduct healing services. But that's not why Christ came out or came forth from heaven. It's as though Jesus, after spending time alone with his father in prayer, is powerfully reminded of his mission. That is to proclaim the gospel of God and eventually to lay his life down on the cross at Calvary. Although crowds flocked to Peter's house in Capernaum, Jesus knew that they were pursuing him for physical healing and not necessarily spiritual healing. One commentator puts it this way, quote, the response of the crowds was not repentance, but attraction to Jesus as a performer of miracles. We can have this same kind of attraction to Jesus today, right? Large crowds, lots of money, attention, people flowing through the doors, but it's often because there are felt needs being met. Repentance and sin and, and hell and judgment are uh, subjects that are rarely brought up. There's not a sense, uh, as, as Luther had, that uh, as, as, as one scholar said, the man between God and the devil Luther understood himself in this way, that there's a holy war going on, an invisible war. And, and too often, the, the, the broad evangelical church can seem more about meeting felt needs than our deepest and truest needs, which is the gospel, which is salvation uh, in Christ. And so, so Jesus did not come forth from heaven uh, primarily to heal uh, diseases. This was merely a byproduct of his ministry. And you know, in our day, it is true, I believe, that God will at times heal people. But most of the time, he does not. Most of the time, he does not heal them in this life. And so when we sing hymns and we, we, we read prayers and so forth about God's healing, we believe that he heals. Sometimes, though, it's when when we go on to be with him. And it's not in this life. Sometimes he chooses to bring healing in this life. We praise the Lord for that. I always love it when there are those who are in their very latter years and uh, they're sort of you know, on their deathbed. They've been given the, the prognosis and, and uh, a godly man or woman uh, will say something like this, Stop praying for me. <laughs> Would you please stop praying for my healing? I want to go home. I want to go to heaven. 
And some of you uh, would sympathize with that kind of thing as uh, you've uh, gone through suffering in your life and you've longed for heaven. Uh, but this is, um, this is the heart of someone who, who knows Christ. To live as Christ and to die uh, is, is gain. But Christ, he comes uh, to the world not to do a healing ministry uh, and to meet people's felt needs. He comes to preach the gospel of the kingdom and to give his life uh, for our sins, to pay for the debt uh, of those whom the Father had given to him. So there are many things that we can learn from this story. There are sort of practical applications, which, which we've talked about already, about seeking the Lord privately and so forth. But that's not really ultimately what is the most important point here. The, the most important point is that Jesus, after being strengthened in his resolve by his heavenly Father through prayer, makes it clear to his disciples and to all of us this evening that he was sent forth from God not to spread his fame and popularity, not to uh, set up a kind of uh, uh, mission tent where they would do healings, but to accomplish the Father's purpose for him as a preacher of the good news and a righteous substitute for sinners. For this is why I came out, Jesus says. This is why I came out. This mission, as we will see later, only did not increase his popularity, but greatly decreased it even the point to the point where not even one would stand with him in his greatest hour when he was falsely accused and arrested, tried and nailed to a cross. So aside from an increasing love and admiration for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, what else can we take away from this text this evening? Well, there's the exhortation to seek the will of the Father being aware of the powerful pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Beloved, the trinity of evil is seeking to draw you and your family away and to destroy your faith. That's, that's it. Uh, we need to be on guard. We need to be on battle footing. We are learning more and more about this uh, war and outbreak of war. Uh, between Israel and Hamas, and everybody is on wartime footing. This is how we ought to be spiritually. Every day, putting on the armor of God, recognizing there are forces trying to take us out, destroy our faith, distract us from Jesus, come after our children, all of this. It's the reality. Uh, it's, all, it's in all the headlines now. Um, there's the facade of being a, a nation... Uh, founded upon uh, Christian values and so forth, but we're seeing all of that now, uh, the curtain come down, and we're seeing uh, wickedness prevailing in our culture in a way that it never has before. It's not an exaggeration to say that, and there's a spiritual war going on. And so are we on wartime footing? We seek the will of the Father as we sit under His Word, as we call upon His name in prayer, as we are together in the life of the church. Uh, everyone had a plan for Jesus, so it seems. The devil had a plan for Jesus in the desert. 
the disciples had a plan for Jesus to go back to their home and continue with the ministry that had been going on the day before, but they were not the right plan. They were not the will of the Father. Let us be careful, beloved, as Christian believers, that we don't think that the will of the Father is always the easiest path or that which people will approve of. The will of the Father is made plain to us in the Scriptures, and it's not always easy. In fact, it's the narrow way. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Often the uh, call of discipleship in the church today is to indulge yourself, to take up your cell phone, and to follow the latest trend. Um, but we see such a strong call to discipleship by our Lord himself, and he has plans for us, not always easy plans, but plans that are blessed and for his glory and our greatest good. Doing the right thing does not always mean doing the popular thing or the thing that will provide more money or status or fame in life. This, of course, could apply in all different kinds of ways as you consider your lives. But this evening, let's consider the application, which I believe comes straight from our text. To the disciples, it seemed evident what the Father's will was, to go back, to go back to the center of town, set up Capernaum International Healing Ministries, and continue to gain popularity that was quickly spreading. This was a comfortable place. People were happy. How could there be a better plan than this? It's kind of like the story of John Payton, the great missionary, Scottish missionary to the New Hebrides. In the New Hebrides Islands, which is modern-day Vanuatu, there were islanders that had never been reached with the gospel. The challenging thing with this, uh, this mission, this 19th century mission to the South Seas and to the New Hebrides Islands was that, was that these islands were populated by cannibals. And John Payton, in his early 30s, had a thriving ministry in Glasgow. And of course, when he announced that he and his young wife were going to go to the South Seas to bring the gospel to these cannibals, uh, people began bringing objections. Um, one elderly man stood up and said, you will be eaten by the cannibals. Pretty straightforward warning. And he said something to the effect of, kind sir, you are close to death. <laughs> he was an elderly man. And when you die, you will be consumed by the worms. If I go to Vanuatu to preach the gospel and I am killed and eaten by cannibals, we will be in the same place, essentially. And on resurrection day, we will both rise in Christ. So whether eaten by worms or eaten by cannibals, we are in the Lord. And so he went. And not everybody's called to this kind of work, of course, but he was called and he obeyed that call and he went. And within three months, his wife and his newborn baby died of sickness. 
and he buried them, and he wept over their grave. But the Lord gave him many, many, many more years of mission work and the spreading of the gospel and raising money for foreign missions, and the Lord used him in mighty ways. This is not the plan or the path, this path of suffering that we would so quickly choose, but it was ultimately the best plan and the one that the Lord had ordained and led John Payton into. You see, the right choice isn't always the easy choice, but we trust him in the midst of this world. And so, as we, by God's strength, remain steadfast as a church in proclaiming the gospel uh, through Christ-centered preaching and teaching and not capitulating to all the latest uh, techniques for growth, we must remember what some think is irrelevant or even foolish, we believe is the power of God. Think about what Christ is saying. This is why I came forth. This is why my Father sent me into the world. Remember Peter when Jesus gave his predictions about dying. What did he say? Oh, no, Lord. Oh, no, Lord. You're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus said, what? Get behind me? Satan. When's the last time one of your close friends called you Satan? <laughs> These are pretty strong words. But the point is, Satan is always trying to trip up the plan and purpose of God. He's unsuccessful. The Lord will have his will done. But we need to remember in our own lives how he's always trying to trip us up and always trying to distract us and as a church distract us from what we are called to do, and that is to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we close. First Corinthians chapter one and starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the counterintuitive, counterculture nature of the ministry of Christ in his church. 
Christ is the power of God. And so let us, dear ones, seek the Lord. Let us seek his will. Let us seek to carry out his will in this church and in our lives. And, and let's, yes, remember to seek those times of personal renewal and encouragement through times of personal worship, family worship, and as our confession says, most importantly, the public worship of God where the means of grace of word and sacrament are set forth and where Christ himself feeds us upon his word of promise. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this brief time in your word this evening. We thank you for this narrative where some may read it and see nothing more than uh, a movement of Christ and his disciples from one place to another with a commitment to preach. But Lord, we see so much here, so much more. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us as a church to remain steadfast in our commitment to the faithful proclamation of the word of God, for it is the gospel, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The word of the cross is the power of God unto salvation. It's foolish to the world, but we know that it is that which you use to draw your elect to yourself. O oh Lord, grant us the grace and the strength to carry on, to persevere. And we pray this in Jesus' name.